Pramila Shamsi is the author of seven novels and one book of nonfiction. Among many other prizes, Kalmila is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and in 2013 was named a Granta Best of Young British Novelist. She joined us in the Granta offices for an interview about her new novel, Home Fire, published by Bloomsbury. Kalmila, it's wonderful to have you in the Granta offices. Thank you, it's wonderful to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about um, the novel? So the novel is sort of a reimagining of Antigone, though I don't think you need to know Antigone at mm. all um, to read it. It's um, There are five parts, each from a different point of view, and it's mm. five British Muslims, although their um, sense of loyalty to the idea of being British or being Muslim may vary across um, the different characters. Um, it's two families very different kinds of experiences. One is the home mm-hmm. secretary and his son. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is um, three siblings whose father mm-hmm. was a jihadi who died on his way to Guantanamo. So it's mm-hmm. it's what happens when their lives intersect in a way that becomes very public and political as well as very intimate. Mm, indeed. Um, you mentioned that it is based on Sophocles Antigone. And how can you talk about how the motivation to rework this Greek mm-hmm. tragedy came about? Well, it was it presented to me, really, mm. um, by Jitendra Verma, who runs a Tara Arts um, Theatre in mm-hmm. London, um, who asked me to adapt Antigone in a contemporary context mm-hmm. um, for his theatre. Um, my problem, of course, is I don't know how to write plays. And also, more specifically, that he asked this at a moment when I was casting about for the next novel to write. Right. So I did, you know, in good conscience, go out there thinking, you know, well, before I get onto the next novel, let's see if I can do a play for Jitinder. But as I went over Antigone, which I had mostly forgotten because I hadn't mm-hmm. looked at it since university, mm. um, it was very quickly clear to me how what kind of contemporary story I wanted to tell. Mm. And the more I thought about how I would do it as a play, the more I was really thinking about how I would do it as a novel. Mm. Um, mm. Till one day I threw my hands in the air and realised I was going to do that and Jitinder would have to forgive me, which he did. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been quite affirming for you in the sense that, you know, you've been asked to write a play and then it's like actually the novel is the form that, I mean, obviously you're a novelist, but, you know... In no, order to see it yeah. in those terms. Yeah, no, it was it was lovely. I mean, you know, there was a bit of me that would have loved to write a play because I love theatre, but I realised, you know, I need to love it as a spectator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, maybe I just know how to do the solitary thing mm-hmm. where as the writer you are sort of imagining the whole world better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I, I, find it, I found it very difficult to just think in terms of dialogue and to, I mean, not that, Playwrights really only think in terms of dialogue, mm. but in terms of words on the page. Mm. Um, you know, I'm always interested in the stuff between words and, and the stuff unsaid. Mm, wonderful. Could you talk about some of the hardest or easiest things about working with that narrative, or like some of the difficulties you ran up against in trying to adapt it for a novel, or the things you chose to ignore, to, things you chose to kind of really embrace about that story? Um, there were. It was a difficult novel to write because it's a novel and they're difficult mm-hmm. to write. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think any of the difficulty in any obvious way came from working with Antigone because quite early on I knew that I would use what was useful and discard what mm-hmm. wasn't. Um, and so that was fine. What unexpectedly became problematic mm-hmm. was the fact that because I had the Antigone structure, I sort of was able quite early on to work out 
plot outline, mm. which you wouldn't think would be a problem, but I'm a writer who never works out plot outline in advance. I sort of you know, think my way through it as I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found myself feeling curiously hemmed in by the fact of knowing what was going to happen down mm-hmm. the line. And I think partly it's there's, there's a certain adrenaline rush that comes from not knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's terrifying and you you know, can go down blind alleys and mm-hmm. do the wrong thing. But there's always that moment when you figure out the next step and it's thrilling. Yeah. Um, or even that vertiginous sense of not knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was odd that I sort of felt hemmed in. Yeah, sort of restricted. Yeah. In restricted. But yeah. then, of course, the joy of it becomes to see how you can... Because I knew it had to be a novel that worked in its own terms as a novel and had to work for 21st century Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the fun becomes in seeing how you can both move away from the original, also possibly use elements of the original, but in, in mm. sort of unexpected or more subtle ways, mm. um, and what you just want to take right from there um, and place in your story. Yeah, great. I think, I think that does come through. As you, said, as you mentioned, each of the um, five sections is told from a different perspective, all in the third person. Um, and these sections are really distinct from each other, especially I found Anika's, mm-hmm. um, which is the most fragmentary and the most poetic. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you choose to structure the book in this way and what were the sort of difficulties that you mm-hmm. ran up against? You know, I don't even remember how I chose the structure of the book. I know mm-hmm. there was a point when I thought of having it all be from um, the perspective of Isma, who is the older sister. Um, and very quickly, I mean, I was sort of interested in her character. She's a very minor character in the play, but mm. but one I find very interesting. Mm. Um, but very quickly, I realized there's too much she doesn't witness or doesn't know. Mm. Um, and I seem to be interested in multiple perspective novels. I mean, the last couple have done yeah. that as well. Mm. Um, and so I think it sort of became quite natural to think actually, mm. yes, I want Isma's perspective in, but I want the others. And, and mm. then it was just a question of working out who all mm. would be in there. Mm. Um, and a lot of that came from the play because these are sort of, in some ways, the two major families within the play. Um, mm. So I just sort of took them. Although there was a time, for quite a while, I thought that um, the brother Pervez mm. wouldn't be in there, that he would be really? an absent off-stage figure. That's interesting. Um, because... In some ways, I felt his story, it would be easiest for it to be the most cliched of, you yes. know, um, young, disaffected British Muslim mm-hmm. who sort of, you know, um, mm-hmm. someone finds him and tries to brainwash him and what mm-hmm. happens after. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only that at a certain point I realized that actually that story was a lot more complex than, yeah. than that stereotyped version. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I had that... Mm. then I knew I wanted to write him. Mm. And I think the order in which they appear as well, sort of the kind of interplay between the layers as you mm. sort of discover these characters um, is really important. Like the, the having the home secretary right at the end yeah. because we are kind of built up to really hate this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to go through yeah. that and to be sort of sidelined by mm. the tremendous amount of empathy that you managed to mm-hmm. evoke for him um, is amazing and sort of co- complicates you as a reader morally even more because you're like, what do, I, what do I even think about this? Excellent. And, yeah. <laughs> well, he was so interesting, Karamathlon, because at the start, you know, when you first hear of him, it's via Isma, who is, you know, a very, I think, I would hope, um, sort of sensible 
character who you would mm-hmm. trust. Mm-hmm. You know, she's mm-hmm. not in any way given to uh, pronouncements that are unfair. Mm-hmm. And she really has taken against the Home Secretary. Mm-hmm. And that's the first introduction. It's from her point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was prepared to really write him off in some mm-hmm. way. And worried that, that when I came to the section about him, he might be too two-dimensional. But once I started writing him again, you think, oh, no, there's so much more mm. that's complex and interesting going on with this person. Definitely, yeah, yeah. it really comes through. Um, sort of tangential to that, I mm. found that your use of ellipsis between sections was really interesting in the mm-hmm. way that you... I mean, obviously, there's a lot that we're told in terms of the plot, and there's a lot that happens in this book, so mm. much that happens. But there's also this um, delicate understanding of in, implication, mm-hmm. I think, um, and I guess for me, what was so significant about it was that there, a lot of the plot is mediated through different sort of channels. And I wonder if you could speak a little about that, just the television, the social media, the kind of um, newspaper headlines. I remember some years ago being on a panel with Eleanor Catton, mm. um, and we were talking about the difference between writing something in the contemporary world and, and the sort of older historical text, because mm-hmm. we've both done both of them. And she said something that, that really resonated because I, she was sort of vocalizing something that I had never said but had always felt, which was, it's so problematic writing the contemporary world because you find yourself writing brand names mm-hmm. a lot. You know, and one of the examples was, you know, people now don't reach for a tissue, they reach for a Kleenex. Yes. Um, and it's sort of, you don't want to be having brand names. They sort of mm-hmm. disrupt your notion of what should be on a, on a page, largely because our, our ideas of what literature is doesn't have brand names in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in some way when I started writing this, I was sort of wary of, you know, really am I going to have Skype and Twitter and mm-hmm. all that? And at a certain point I thought, this is the way these people communicate. You're mm-hmm. writing a contemporary story it's really significant that there are now all these modes of communication out there and Mm. there's no way to not do it, so Mm. embrace it. Um, And it was quite fun to actually do that and and Mm. also because I've been thinking in terms of the Greek chorus. Yeah, so I was going to bring that in. Yeah, Yeah. so how does the Greek chorus function Mm. within our contemporary world? And very quickly it became, of course, it's media and social media Mm -hmm. Um, because one of the the features of the Greek chorus, of course, within Antigone is that they change sides mm-hmm. um, and they're very easily swayed but they're also loud and persuasive mm-hmm. um, and it just seems such a natural fit mm-hmm. um, that I in fact was amazed that no one has started a social media channel called Greek Chorus <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's I think it's really fascinating I think it can often fail feel a bit hammy as you said to, to sort of embark on that but I think the, the balance that you've achieved is you know quite um beneficial to well it has to it has to work towards a very specific purpose and 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 in this because so much is the interplay of the personal and the public yeah um and you know so i'm I'm just i'm using those outside voices Mm -hmm. within that interplay and not in i hope in an excessive way or you know making Mm -hmm. them um more i suppose um well, I said heavy-handed. You know, mm. I didn't. I didn't want it too much because, although they do come in quite a lot in the Anika section, which, as you say, is quite yeah. fragmentary. It sort of makes up for sort of her kind of yeah. lack of willingness to engage with it. Yeah, you know, it but it's also that in that section, there's. It's also in some ways the most internal section because mm-hmm. it's just about 
what she is emotionally experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted actually in that section particularly to have that very stark difference between what someone is emotionally mm-hmm. experiencing in what to them is a very private matter mm-hmm. and how the outside world is sort of doing a public clamor around mm-hmm. it that is so mm-hmm. radically different mm-hmm. from the way she's experiencing things. Mm-hmm. The phrase Googling while Muslim or mm-hmm. GWM pops up a lot. And I think it's a great coinage. Could you tell us about that? Um, yeah, it's, it's early on when the very privileged sound home secretary who doesn't, you know, Muslim isn't a word he attaches to himself, although mm. his father grew up, was raised Muslim. Mm. Um, and he tells Anika that she should Google something, you know, quite mm. meaningless, but the word bomb is in there and, and mm. she says, oh, that's a good idea if you're GWM, isn't it? And mm. he says, what's that? She says, Googling while Muslim. But part of that came actually from my own anxieties around the book because right. when I was researching it, because it does have um, all these ideas of radicalizations and Islamic State propaganda and all mm. of that, um, and I was very distressingly conscious mm. while doing the research that mm. there was a part of my brain thinking you know, is a red flag going to go up mm. against my name in some room somewhere? Mm. Um, and, I mean, I was always, you know, I, I live in this world, I know about the Snoopers chart and all kinds of things, so I knew it was out there, but it, this really um, made me aware of the extent to which those concerns were in my brain. Mm. Um, and the fact that I was doing things like looking at a few websites that were relevant to all this yeah. and then going and looking at some celebrity gossip. Right. You know, as just somehow, balance. Yeah, that balance. Because <laughs> if you look at the celebrity gossip, then, you know, you have yeah. to be fine. And, yeah. and you know, making sure at a certain point that I told a few people what I was working on so they could vouch for me if necessary. Yeah. And you're, as you're doing so, thinking I'm being absurd and paranoid, yeah. and you're thinking, they're making you paranoid. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Sort of yeah. this kind of cycle. So it was more your experience writing that that made you write in I mean, I like, was, it was a kind of a bit of both. They were kind a of bit giving of both. Up each other. Yeah. You know, it's it's something that I already knew, and mm. um, you know, then there are all kinds of moments when I I remember I think it was very early in writing the book, and um, some friends of mine we were on a WhatsApp group, and one of them joking around sent a you know on the what they used to have no longer do the emoji of a gun, mm. um, which was a sort of very joking you know kind yeah. of oh shoot me dead kind of thing, and yeah. another one said don't do that kind of stuff. Mm. You know, don't use that emoji. And I thought, really? Mm-hmm. You know, have we come to this? But of course we had come to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's, you know, the the scene where Anika arrives in Karachi and her cousin mm-hmm. says, we spend our whole lives being so careful we don't give anyone a reason to reject our visa applications. Don't stand next to this guy. Don't follow that guy on Twitter. Don't download that Noam Chomsky book. And for me, that um, mm-hmm. symbolized something so important about um, the way that these lives interact and how readers would be um, who aren't familiar with these paranoias and these kind of like fears are really going to be sh- shaken by that moment. I don't know kind of I was right. in a way. Yeah. Um, this heightened environment of religious kind of profiling and suspicion is mm-hmm. just something that you, even your own family, you, you have to be suspicious of. Yeah, and, and part of what was in there was that actually even within... You know, it's not just all Muslims have equal reason to mm. 
um, have concerns around this, but you know, Anika and her family, they are British, mm-hmm. and there's this cousin with a Pakistani passport mm-hmm. who just saying to her, you, you know, you think you have it bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I have, a, he, he says, I have a sister in America, mm-hmm. and if I want to go and see her, I need to get visas, mm-hmm. and I have to be really careful in anything I do that I don't give anyone a reason to mm-hmm. reject a visa, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, um, I think would be very familiar to most Pakistanis. Yeah. And, you know, I only got a British passport four years ago, so I, I saw how radically that changes your ability to travel mm. um, and your sense of terror about... Well, not terror. I mean, it wasn't terrifying to think I'd be rejected a visa, but, but the yeah. constant apprehension every time you have to apply for a visa about whether you'll get it or not, or whether yeah. you'll be able to go to these places or not. Yeah, the sort of um, background emotional trauma mm-hmm. of it. Of all. Yeah. yeah. Could you... Um, say a little bit about uh, the decision to include um, the Home Secretary's policy on the dual citizenship and the revoking of that if involved with terrorism. So, as I said, I became a British citizen in 2013 and mm. um, that process of becoming a citizen was, was full of anxiety because they kept changing the rules and making it more difficult. Mm. Um, and it would always surprise me that actually I meet British people who I assume to really know what's going on and they would say oh you're in the process of applying oh god will you have to do that citizenship test and I think really you think that's the tough Mm -hmm. part I mean that's something you learn from a book and you go and you take a test that's easy it's qualifying and meeting all the rules and restrictions and you know leaping over one barrier after the other um, and spending years not knowing if you'll make it in the end Mm -hmm. Um, that's the tough part Mm -hmm. but there is a very odd um, notion in this country that that it's easy to get citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I got it, it was a great relief. Mm-hmm. And then I was reading somewhere, um, and I realized that if you're a dual citizen, as I am, that actually the British government has long had the power to revoke your British citizenship if they feel that's in the good mm-hmm. of the nation. Although you never heard that really being invoked or applied yeah. until quite recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened around the time that that I was became a citizen, um, and this is when Theresa May was Home Secretary, was that she mm-hmm. wanted to expand those powers mm-hmm. to include anyone, mm-hmm. um, any naturalized citizen, um, any dual citizen. Possibly, she, it, maybe not even naturalized, I'm not sure. And um, it, those powers were slightly pushed back because Parliament said you can't make someone stateless. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did widen the net. So a naturalized citizen who doesn't have a second citizenship but can be shown to have a claim on second citizenship, mm. can have their um, British passport taken away from them. Mm. Um, and increasingly, these are being used against, um, particularly, I think, people on terrorist offences who leave the country. Um, mm. And it just strikes me as absurd. You know, either mm. you have a justice system that you believe in, mm. or you don't. But you can't say, you know, certain citizens will face these penalties mm. and other citizens will face other penalties. Mm. Um, you know, so you need to have one set of rules for everyone. Otherwise, mm. really, it you know, otherwise it's just a discriminatory state, which is what this now is. Absolutely, and you know, no matter how you sort of swing it politically, it's always going to result in more xenophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether or not that's the intention, you have to recognise that that's the flow-on effect. Well, it is because it says that if you are let's use the phrase British British, (laughs) then, you know, no matter what you do, you'll always be British. 
You can be British in prison somewhere, but you can be British. <laughs> but if you're naturalized and if you're a dual citizen, and that's an interesting one because I know a lot of um, people who are who have lived in Britain all their lives, never mm. lived anywhere else, but might have a parent from somewhere else who mm. is able to get them dual citizenship and chooses to do so simply because that makes it easier to travel back to mm. their mother or father's country of origin mm. and see their grandparents. Mm. You know, that's the sort of basis on which you get the dual citizenship. Yeah. Um, but I don't think most people realize that the moment they get dual citizenship for their child, mm. they're opening their child up to the possibility of having their Britishness revoked. Mm. Both, you know, administratively and yeah. kind of conceptually. Mm-hmm. Um, further on, on that point, I guess, like more broadly, um, a lot of your novels deal quite specifically with political issues. I don't know whether you've heard of the American poet Juliana Spar. Yeah. She, when when asked what role poetry plays in mm-hmm. in uh, politics, she sort of has this great answer where she says she thinks of poetry as the equivalent of a Greek riot dog mm-hmm. to accompany you into the streets, mm-hmm. sort of bark at the police in the sense that it can accompany you but not necessarily make oppressive structures disappear. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what you think about the role of the novel in politics and well, to start with, I yearn for the day when someone sits down with a writer and says, you write intensely personal novels that don't take on politics. Don't you worry that that's going to seem small-minded and parochial and restricted? But no one does. There, there is this assumption in in Britain, and I think much of Western Europe, um, well, I won't speak for but within the English language novel, that somehow if you bring politics in, then you're doing something that you're doing something. Mm. Whereas if you don't bring politics in, you're not doing something, Mm. right? Mm. That somehow that's the norm Mm. and shouldn't be commented on. Mm. So I think to start with, we need to start interrogating that idea a Mm. a little. Because in many literary traditions around the world, including that of Pakistan, Mm. um, it's not a willed, thought-out act Mm. to bring politics into the novel. The fact is politics is in life. Mm. You're writing about people's lives. Mm. Really? You're going to leave politics out of it? Mm. Well, you know, how nice to live in your privilege is Mm. sort of the the position um, I think a lot of the world would take on that. Mm. So when I'm bringing politics, it's because my understanding of the day-to-day facts of life Mm. involve what's going on politically. Mm. Um, And of course that has to do with the fact that I didn't grow Mm. up here. Mm. I grew up in Pakistan. Um, and I grew up with things like partition within my family background. Um, and I grew up in a time of military rule. Um, and I had an uncle who was under house arrest by the time I was five. Um, and so your, your idea of um, there is no separation in, in the political and personal. Um, and so what does, what does the novel do with politics? Well, I don't think there's a single answer to that. Um, in some cases, all it does is acknowledge that politics is in people's lives, mm. you know, and, and maybe for a lot of novels, that's the extent of it. Mm. Um, in other cases, maybe it starts conversations. Mm. I don't know. Um, I, I can't think of the last time a novel went out and forced a piece of legislation somewhere. No, but <laughs> I mean, it, it, um, the flow on effects of it, mm. as you say, yeah. I think conversations are very yeah. powerful and personal recommendations of literature and yeah. things that have made you think. Um, 
you have to recognize that that power. Sure, and yeah. but and that's why it's so hard to know because I think mm-hmm. it's sort of it's that ripple effect yeah. with a novel, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you don't know if if you know someone went out one day and actually made a difference to mm-hmm. the world. Um, how much of that had to do with the novels they'd ever been reading? Mm. It's a very hard thing. You can't measure it. To, because they yeah. can't measure it. I'm like, you know, when people say what novels, people often ask that question, uh, talk about a novel that's changed your life. And I always think, I hope no one asks me that because I don't know a novel that changed <laughs> my life. I mean, I can talk about novels that have been important to me as a writer from which I've learned something. Mm-hmm. But I know that's not what the question means. Mm. Um, and at that larger level, what I know is, of course, novels have changed my life. Mm. Um, but at such a deep level that they have completely shaped who I am and how I see the world and how I engage with the world. Mm. Um, you know, it's that very subterranean kind of effect. Mm. Um, and that is what makes a novel political, mm. is because it changes you. Mm. You know, that's the politics of it, is that it has that power um, to take you so completely into the lives of people whose lives you would otherwise not em- enter and you, it's impossible to emerge from that unchanged. Could you talk a little bit about the title and how ideas of home are problematized or complicated in the novel? Um, you know, I was in America a couple of weeks ago and a journalist said, you know, I just love like it's it's home fire and the politician that he's the home secretary. And I thought, oh God, I haven't oh. even thought of that. Because of course, here we're so used to the phrase home secretary that you don't think of the home in there. No. But actually, once you start thinking about it, it's such a domestic term mm. for something that is so, so non-domestic in yeah. a way, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so we pretend that I was thinking of the home secretary when I put the <laughs> home fire in there. Um, but um, I wanted to have... Or what I liked once I thought of it um, was the ambiguity in there. Um, that on one side, of course, it's the idea of keep the home fires burning, mm-hmm. um, which is brings with it an association of familial warmth and welcome. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's a house on fire. Um, and not just a house, a home, which could be a nation, it could be a family, it could be a physical space. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think within the novel there are both those things because I did want very much there to be a genuine warmth of human relationships across mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. Um, but also the conflagration um, and also the the that this idea through it that you know a match has been lit somewhere. Um, where is it going to fall, and mm-hmm. what damage will it do? Mm-hmm. And in or in various places, and how long does it take for them to meet yeah. up and yeah. sort of? Explode. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and also the idea of home. I mean, the, the novel starts with um, a woman who's being interrogated in an airport. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the questions she's asked is, do you consider yourself British? And she says, but I am British. And the man says, but do you consider yourself British? As though that's a separate thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could have had that interrogation scene be at any number of airports, because she, well, mm-hmm. one of two, because she's flying from um, London to... Boston Mm. Um, but I wanted to be in London because I want to be sense this is her home Mm. this is a country which she's a citizen Mm. she has never committed or gone anywhere near a crime Mm. of any sort Mm. Um, but within her own home she's being asked is this really your home Mm. do you consider it your home which of course what the question is saying is I don't consider this your home yeah I'd like to come back to your Antigone for a minute Mm -hmm. um 
in an interview um, talking about her second translation of Antigone Ann Carson references of Francis Bacon quote, which is, I wanted to paint the scream more than the horror, hmm. which I quite like talking about sort of art's role um, as a spectacle versus sensation. And I was thinking about that a lot in terms of the, the ending of the book and, and in many ways, the book in general, the, the kind of way that you write, um, you really want people to go through this experience. And, and that's what a good novel wants to do, of course. But I just wondered if you had any reaction to that. So the, the Anne Garson translation was actually very important to me in right. thinking this through because I mean I read several translations and, and somehow, you know, I hadn't heard that line of hers before, but there was something so visceral in the translation, much more than anything else, and mm-hmm. which brought out, I thought, the central mm-hmm. grief of the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's very easy with Antigone, I think, to make it... Um, a novel that is playing a play that's that's playing out this sort of much sort of larger abstract question of the individual versus the state mm-hmm. but what's propelling everything is grief mm-hmm. um, and the grief part of it I really wanted to be quite central to the novel mm-hmm. um, and so that idea of the scream which at some point does become a literal howl yes. um, you know I really wanted to have that in there because again it's it's and it comes back to that question of bringing the political into the novel which is the thing the reason why decisions made in Whitehall or Westminster um, can be so appalling to watch is because you realize the human cost of them which will be paid by someone who hasn't made the decisions um, and and the howl that that arises out of this very bureaucratic, legalistic language. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted to do in there, is, is to sort of draw a line between, right, here's some you know, point of quite dry law, mm-hmm. um, and this is what it actually looks like enacted within a human life. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Granta Podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please leave us a rating as it helps other people find the show.